This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I'm talking about the empty nest syndrome. And this is a real thing, guys. So I'm going to talk through that in a very real way. I'll share my story and I hope you learn from it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. Boy, has this topic been coming up a lot in my office and also in my personal life. Today, it's the end of August. Most of our kids are back in school. Um, If we're in our age group, chances are we've got kids either late in high school or in college. And so many of us are struggling with different emotions around this whole empty nest phenomenon, including me. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think it's still one of those things that we don't talk about very much, kind of like menopause and the whole time that we're in. There's just not a lot of conversation out there about it. I actually had to dig through and find some books on Amazon and read about a hundred articles that I could find on Google about empty nest and how we feel and what to expect. And I truthfully didn't find it very useful. Yeah, some of it was. And I'll go over some of those kind of more scientific details today. But honestly, I think the most useful thing is just talking about it and sharing our experiences. Because even though there are multiple responses to our children leaving and lots of different ways that we can feel. In fact, this whole syndrome is characterized by very up and down fluctuating emotions that seem to be in complete conflict with each other. On one hand, we're so excited that they're leaving and going to college. We're genuinely joyful about their independence. And at the same time, we can feel grief, sometimes to the extreme, like somebody has died. We can go through those same five steps of grief that we do when someone dies. And we can alternate between those two feelings or even have them at the same time. I know that because I'm experiencing this myself. And it can feel very kind of strange and crazy making to say the least. So this time in life, and we've talked about this before, so we're maybe we're 45 to 55, that would be typical, or there's obviously a lot of variation depending on when we had our kids. All this stuff happens at once, right? We might be going through menopause. We're certainly suffering with just the normal parts of aging. Our parents can be getting sick and dying. Our jobs are changing. This is not an uncommon time that we get divorced. And then on top of that, our kids are growing up. They're becoming independent and they're leaving home. And it can all feel a bit much. I know when you throw all that stuff together, it can really feel like you're going crazy. I felt like that. And if we don't have someone to talk to or just someone to share your feelings with, and I'm going to share some of my own personal stories just to normalize this a little bit and some of the stories that my patients have been telling me, I think as much as we don't share how we're feeling, it keeps us in that stuck place of feeling like there's something wrong with me. I'm the only one feeling this way. I promise you're not. If you're not finding that this new emptiness phenomenon is just the most beautiful, amazing time of life, well, guess what? It isn't for most people. And there's certainly some positive aspects to it, no question. But the way our culture 
portrays it, I think, encourages us to feel like we should be so excited and overjoyed and looking forward to this new space in our lives when we can rekindle our relationship with our partner and we can take up new hobbies and maybe we can even think about retirement. And it's supposed to be such an amazing, magical, beautiful time. And we're going to talk to our kids once or twice a week on FaceTime, and then they're going to come home for Christmas and doesn't always go that way. (laughs) And even if it does, it can feel pretty bleak. So just to normalize those feelings, I have one child in college. A year ago, my oldest left for college. I still have two at home. I've got twins who are in their senior year, but they might as well be in college for the amount of time that I see them. For those of you who've gone through a senior year, if it's anything like mine, it's a real guide into what it's like to not have them at home because at least in my household they did not spend much time at home at all so we do get in eased into it somewhat in that way and I do really recommend preparing for this time and planning for it a couple of years ahead of time so that you can diminish the grief which can be quite extreme so in my case I had one go to college. And that was a rocky senior year with my oldest. Um, Not unlike many of my patients who've been telling me the same thing, having a senior at home is sometimes beautiful and wonderful. And sometimes it can really be trying. And this is the way it should be, right? If we have an approximately 18-year-old, this is an adult who's trying to be independent. And it's really difficult to be a young adult living at home under your parents' rules, and then trying to break free and become an independent person at the same time. You've got one foot in the child camp and one foot in the adult camp, and you just kind of can't move forward. And I remember that feeling when I was a senior. It's a pretty weird time when we're stuck between two places. So that one was really ready to leave, like so ready to leave. And honestly, I felt very ready for my oldest to leave as well. And I truly thought that I would feel nothing much but relief. That's not because I don't love this child so much, but just because she was so ready to be on her own. And I did feel some relief. And I was very surprised that shortly after that, and it took a couple of months, I really did feel a lot of grief and depression almost You know, I was able to go to work and continue my normal activities, and I had already built in some things into my schedule to make that easier. I always talk about really helping to grow your network of female friends, rekindle your sex life. I'm doing all those things already, but I noticed a huge amount of grief when my first child went to college. Part of that is because I think it's very natural, and I've been with many of you who are feeling the same way, when your children leave home... It pushes you into this kind of life review phase. At least it did for me. You get to look back, like many of us do, on all of the pictures and relive all of the things that happened since that child was born and all of the mistakes that you made. And it's a a real time of self-judgment and not always in a good way. You know, learning from our mistakes is great, but nobody is a perfect parent There's some really good literature about being a good enough parent. A good enough parent is one who makes some mistakes, but apologizes for them, takes accountability, obviously provides a pretty stable amount of love and caring for this child, and then allows them 
to grow into an independent individual and leave. But there's no such thing as a perfect parent. And so I really struggled with that. And it, it got worse around the holidays. So in November, December, it was a pretty dark time for me as far as just missing my oldest child. And because I come from a family where I'll where I'm divorced from their father, holidays are always a bit of a mismatch. You know, the whole family being together thing doesn't happen anymore. And so I think for families who are divorced, and about half of us are divorced from the parents of our youngest children, and are either in another marriage or single. And so that's incredibly common. And I think without the two parents being in the same household to share that grief, it can feel very isolating. Like I'm the only one who's feeling this way, you know, probably her dad is, has a better relationship with her and, and all of this kind of best parent contest stuff that's so hard not to play that game when you're divorced. And so I really shout out to divorced parents or parents who's, who are not co-parenting closely. When your kids go to college, it's even more difficult. Not only are you not getting support from your father of your child, perhaps, you know, we certainly hope people can co-parent together in a healthy manner. But if you're not getting support around this grief about the child leaving, you can feel very alone. On top of that, if we've been a single parent, it's natural that we've identified even more with that parenting role than somebody who's not in that situation. We've been the only parent or the primary parent for this child. And so sometimes those relationships can get a little bit what are called enmeshed. I had a bit of that. So, you know, really having a tight relationship that's not always the most healthy. So we're much more prone to do that if we're divorced, if we're a single parent, if we only have one child, you know, for obvious reasons. If we don't work outside the home and being a parent has really been the main thing that we've identified as who we are. So there are a number of things that can make it easier or harder for some of us, but just to say that all of us experience it differently and whatever you're going through is normal. Now, the emptiness syndrome is not a psychiatric diagnosis. It's a set of responses that we have to a huge loss. And so it might be handled in a very unremarkable manner. Some people are not bothered by it much at all. And I have a theory about what that is that I'm going to get why that is that I'm going to get to shortly because I've been examining why it hit me so hard. So some people are bothered by it less than others. On the other extreme, some people really fall into a severe clinical depression. So we have to keep an eye on our symptoms, know that they are normal. It is normal to experience feelings of lack of purpose because mainly our primary purpose was to be a parent. And now what do we do? Sometimes of lack of control, it can be very scary not knowing what your child's doing anymore. And some people fall into, you know, following them on social media or trying to hack into their phone or all of these crazy things. Not saying I've ever done any of those, but I understand the draw to do that. It's really hard when you've had this child in your eyesight for 18 years to now have no idea what they're doing. So lack of control and then grief, which can lead to depression. And so knowing that all those feelings are normal, we also don't want to ignore severe symptoms that can indicate that you need to be, need to be treated for depression. So certainly if more than two weeks has gone by where you have not got out of a very sad, depressed mood, that's a time to seek help. If you're not seeing many breaks, 
and your depressed mood during the day, or certainly if you're feeling that life isn't worth living or that you have ideas about harming yourself. Now, short of that, those feelings are normal and allowing ourselves to feel them and just go through them is really the only way to get to the other side. And it's not easy and it doesn't happen overnight. I was reading some books about empty nest and dealing with children leaving. And one of the things that I really thought was helpful, and I was reading this around Christmas time last year when I was really in the depths of just missing this child and doing my life review, which to me was accentuating all the things I did wrong and kind of negating or not noticing all the things that I did right, which is a typical human experience. (laughs) I was really struggling with this life review and judging everything that I'd done and wondering if all of the problems in the world were due to my poor parenting. And so we can get into a little bit of a state where we exaggerate our importance as parents. Having been someone who's done that myself, I think that I can say that. Don't want to offend anybody. But guess what? Parenting is not quite as important as we used to think. Now, when kids are babies and they're completely dependent on their primary caregiver, it's critical, of course, because those little children depend on us or whomever we designate as their primary caregiver. As they get older, especially into the teen years, their peer group, their friend group, becomes much more influential than we are, much more influential. And so it's just not true that whatever we did caused them to be however they are. And that might be if you've got the most well-balanced, amazing, polite, responsible child in the world, good for you. I would take a small amount of credit, but that credit belongs mostly to the child and to the peer group. On the other hand, if you have a child who's really struggling, maybe it's with substance abuse, maybe it's with failure to be able to leave the nest. Maybe it's with difficulty with relationships or difficulty with schoolwork. Any kind of difficulty, it's not your fault. You know, many of us have children who were raised in the same household, same parenting, turn out totally differently because we do have a primary disposition that we're working with. I have twins, for example. One of them came out screaming and really didn't stop screaming, and now she's almost 18, and her modus operandi is to be anxious and to be quite vocal about it. Whereas her sister has always had a more calm, withdrawn temperament. And so getting the same exact parenting, they are very different in the way that they express their emotions. And I can take very little credit for that, nor can I take too much of the blame. Because if we're good enough parents, we did the best we could And the kids are going to get influenced from lots of other places. So just in case your child has left home and you're stuck in that sort of circling life review of, oh, my God, all the things that I did wrong and all the things that I could have done better. A really great piece of advice that I read is to spend some time journaling all the things that you did right. So I decided to do this because I was stuck in a pretty dark hole over the holidays and I actually got as many pictures as I could find of me having fun with my oldest child, just to make sure they actually did happen (laughs) throughout life, cut them out and then made little slogans of what was happening during that time that showed a picture of me being a good enough or a really good parent. And that is a slice of the best times in life, sure. But I think we need to do things like that to counter this negativity bias that we all have. And that's part of human nature which is to do the opposite, 
to accentuate all the things that we did wrong. And so I don't think you can see my whole board on this little video, but I'm gonna show it to you just as an example. So I made this. I'll just give you a little view. This is what it looks like. <laughs> That's more than you can see, but lots of pictures with lots of little slogans about all the great times that we had. Now, when the, the siblings saw this, they said, oh my God, do not ever show that to anybody. <laughs> it's not for framing and putting on the wall anywhere. It's in my closet, but it is something that I refer to sometimes. And it was really, really helpful. So some type of therapeutic exercise like that, I find can be really helpful just to remind yourself that you were a good enough parent and that you had great times and you've even got pictures of it because sometimes when teenagers leave home, they can do it in a pretty dramatic way. Now there's all kinds of different ways that kids leave home. Some of them have trouble getting out of the nest. They can, they're very anxious about going to school even down the road and they might call you every day and they might come home twice a week and that is one level of independence. There's no right or wrong or judgment here. That can be difficult in its own ways. And I've worked with a lot of parents who are really struggling to get their babies out of the nest. On the other extreme, kids can leave home and just not talk to you again. <laughs> now, that could be just generally being dismissive and not answering texts or not calling very frequently, certainly not as often as we want. Or it can even get into what's called estrangement. And estrangement is a very common situation People do not talk about it because it comes with so much shame. But estrangement affects about one in four of us. We're estranged from one close relative or another. And the most common estrangement pattern is between a parent and a child. It's certainly not always or usually permanent, but having a long block of time where the child just will not talk to you or completely cuts themselves off is not uncommon. It happened to me. It was absolutely devastating. So if anybody's in that situation and wants some advice about it, I refer you to the work of Dr. Joshua Coleman. Dr. Coleman wrote several books about estrangement. He also has a private practice talking to parents who are suffering through this. So if that is something happening in your life, please talk to others about it. There is nothing better than talking to other parents who are going through it too. So my oldest left, really left in a big way. Uh, super independent, decided not to talk to me for quite a while. It was about six months or so. Uh, for those of you going through this, it frequently does get better. Now we've got a really nice relationship and actually talk very regularly. But during that time, it really can be devastating. I think there's probably no worse feeling other than perhaps having your child die. So two extremes, we can have trouble kicking the child out of the nest, <laughs> wishing they'd be more independent. Or we can have a child who leaves so abruptly that they completely estrange us for some time and anything in between. So if you're in one of those extremes or somewhere that you feel is a little bit less healthy and you think that everybody in the world has a perfect relationship with their kids who've gone to college, that they're FaceTiming once or twice a week and visiting for all the holidays and answering all of your texts, that is not my experience. I talk to hundreds of women every month, and that is not my experience. It's much more common to feel a little bit uncomfortable one way or the other and to not be 
as much as we wish it was. You know, the fact is that to our kids, even though they love us so very, very much, we are just not as important to them as they are to us. And that was one of the truths that Dr. Coleman taught me that was so hard to swallow, but we're just not on their minds all the time. And if you remember being 18 to 20 in college or having just left home, I don't think I gave my parents much of a thought, you know, maybe once every week or two, but they certainly were not front of mind. And if they had been, that would probably have been a little bit less of a healthy situation for my independence when I was that age. So just recognizing that everything on the spectrum happens and none of it is pathological. It's all just parts of normal, normal human experience. So if you can not go down that rabbit hole of judgment and just blaming yourself for everything that happened because you weren't a good enough parent, or in my case, I went around in circles about the fact that I delivered babies for the first 10 years of my kids' lives, and I had a fantastic nanny who probably, frankly, gave the kids better one-on-one -on -one time than I ever could because she was just a natural with children. So they got plenty of love and care, but I missed out on a lot of it. And you can't ever get that time back. And it's very easy to just beat ourselves up with the woulda, shoulda, coulda stuff about the past and get stuck in regret. But I promise you there's no peace in going down that road. But working through those feelings is great, not just stuffing them and putting them away and pretending everything's fine. Doing some exercises, journaling, maybe making a picture board like the one that I did. And then just keeping hope that things are not going to stay the way they are right now, no matter how they are, whether your child's talking to you every single day and you can barely get them to do their own laundry at college, or if they won't talk to you at all. <laughs> Whatever's happening, it is not going to stay that way. It will change. It will change. And so that's where understanding impermanence became really helpful for me because it was really hard to believe that I would ever reconnect with my oldest child. It felt very, very permanent. And here we are now a little bit older. She's more of an adult and we're really building a totally different relationships. That's really two adults becoming reconnected and learning who each other are. And so that can happen too. And you'll hear from this from lots of your friends with older adult children that at some point they grow up and instead of having this like gigantic need to leave you to become independent and split off from you, which is required to become an adult, they're now able to embody being an adult and relate to you as a fellow adult. And I'm just getting into that time with a 19-year-old, but really looking forward to seeing how that grows over the next 10, 20 years. So yeah, the relationship with that little child, and I've got pictures of them behind me, I spent plenty of time obsessing with the old childhood photographs and did all that. And that's healthy to do. Look at pictures for a couple of days, cry your eyes out, think about all the things that were wonderful that you did, forgive yourself for the things that you didn't do as well as you could have now, knowing that you did the best that you could at the time with the resources that you had, do some journaling, make some picture books. And then at some point we have to sort of move on because that relationship is over that child is gone. In a way, it is a death of a sort of that child. And now ushering in this new phase of this new human being who's starting to be an adult. But 
I am intentionally resisting the urge to tell you how wonderful and fabulous that is because I think that we're just given a crock of you know what. With that type of cultural discussion about emptiness syndrome being such a wonderful, amazing time when our kids are adults and everything's fantastic, it doesn't leave enough space for the grief. And I really want to honor that there needs to be some space for the grief as well. Now, that being said, there are some cool things that can happen when your kids are not around all the time. And I'm going to talk about those, but I realize that can sound a little bit ridiculous to someone who's really suffering and feeling depressed. But as you start to feel better, you might be able to rekindle your relationship with your partner if you have one or the father of the kids if you're still together. You'll have more time together. And so if you're both committed to it, frequently that happens. Also, frequently relationships end because they were glued together by the children and now the children are gone. There's not much of a reason for the relationship to stay together. So relationships can go either way and that's perfectly healthy and okay. And you're in good company. You're certainly not alone if you're noticing that happening. So relationship changes, in my opinion, always end up being for the best. Either your current relationship gets better or you get out of it and you'll be able to start a new one which I did. So either way, even though it seems very difficult at the time, that is leading in a good direction for you. Rekindling relationships with girlfriends or getting a new group of girlfriends. I talk about my pickleball club all the time. Honestly, if I hadn't had that weekly interaction with female friends during this really difficult time that I went through, I would have felt so stuck There's nothing like having a group of other women to talk through this with or just to play games with, just to realize you're not alone. And so if you don't have that, I didn't have it either. Start it yourself. You can start it yourself. You can be the person who invites a few friends to play Scrabble or Mahjong or pickleball or tennis or go to the movies or whatever something would be that would be fun for you to do together with friends. And if you don't have that group, I recommend that you start it. Of course, exercise, eat right, take care of yourself. That goes without saying. Those are all really healthy ways to help get through this potentially difficult time. So coming back to my theory about why some people do quote unquote better than others with this empty nest, it's really tied in with some other amazing psychological work that I've been studying about attachment theory. And I'm going to talk about this more in a future episode, but many of you might have heard of attachment theory. It's been very popular since it was first described in the mid 20th century. But the very short version is the idea that our relationships are governed by a particular attachment style that each one of us has. Now, there's no pathology here. These are all normal situations that according to the theory, arise out of how securely we were attached to our primary caregiver in our younger years. So I don't think that's all 100% true, but I think a lot of it really resonates. The short version is that some of us develop what's called a preoccupied attachment style. That would be someone who kind of leans into relationships, might tend to be a little bit clingy, not wanting to let go. And you would see this, according to the theory, arising in a child who has a parent who might not be available for them. So parent's going to leave. As soon as the parent comes back, the child's going to be very clingy, might grab onto their leg, be very, very distressed when the parent leaves the room. 
that kind of thing. And so you can see how that conditioning as a child, according to this theory, affects all of our relationships. Some of us might be a little more clingy and needy and really needing another person to complete us type of a feeling, and that would be called the preoccupied attachment style. And if you have that style, which is my MO, when your children leave, it can really trigger that. Uh, because if you're someone who's really circulated your life around finding love and hanging on to it, and then you've had that in your life for 18 years, and then it leaves, it can trigger some very, very painful emotions. Emotions of not being good enough, of trying to replace that love with something else, which could be cookies or alcohol or ice cream or other unhealthy things. And so you can see how attachment styles can play out not only in primary romantic relationships, but even in relationships with our kids. On the other extreme, some people have what's called an avoidant attachment style. And that would be someone who's a little bit more aloof, maybe someone who's a little bit uh, scared to get into commitment or not so thrilled about being in a committed long-term relationship, someone who's more likely to just leave or ghost you or something of that nature. And so when the child leaves, if the parent has that particular style, they, be, they may be more comfortable with that separation than if you had the preoccupied style. Now, in the middle is what's called a secure attachment style. So those of us who were very lucky to grow up with very secure parenting that was always very consistent and always very available, grew up not minding when people came and left, not feeling like they were abandoned if somebody left for a while, not feeling clingy and needing the person to stay, and also not feeling overwhelmed or like you need your own space and pushing people away. So the secure attachment pattern would be in between. Some people are lucky and they have secure attachment style, but honestly, not that many. Most of us have little bits of all three, and many of us can identify with one more than the others. So if left unchecked, I would personally identify most with the preoccupied attachment style. And so that explains partly why I had such a tricky time when my oldest left and in a pretty dramatic way, whereas somebody with more of a secure attachment style or more of an avoidant attachment style might not have spun down into that same rabbit hole. You can also have a combination of, of two and be a little bit clingy and then push away at the same time. And that's called a disorganized attachment style. And none of these names are pathologic. They're all just parts of being a normal human being. But I personally do think it's helpful to do a little bit of study yourself and find out what attachment style you have, because it really can help to explain the way that you react in your intimate relationships. And in this case, in relationship with our children who are leaving. So I'm going to talk to you some more about this as time goes on, but I did want to nod to this really common, difficult time that many of us are having now. It's the last day of August. And as your kids are going back to their last year or years of high school, I've got two seniors in high school. They're pretty much gone already. And I've got one who lives many states away and doesn't talk to me as often as I'd like. How do we keep ourselves the most healthy and happy. And the most important thing is just to talk about it amongst ourselves. So if you have friends in the same boat, be a listening ear for them. Don't tell them everything's going to be great. And this is the best time of their lives. And shouldn't they be so happy? Because I can tell you it can be 
rough, but it doesn't last forever. And if you do need help, seek help from a professional psychologist or psychiatrist. But in the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, share it with your friends, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. 